Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Jennifer Monahan, and you are listening to Living a Courageously Authentic Life. And today I'm really excited because I have my guest, Charlene Jones, with me. Um, Charlene's been on the show before, and she recently came out with a new book uh, called My Impossible Life. And Charlene, I would love for you to tell us about this book and what what drove you to write this book. And then really, what was it like to write a book that was very different from other books you've written? So let's just jump right in because I know my listeners will want to hear more. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And thank you so much for inviting me back on your program. I always enjoy chatting with you. Jennifer, I wrote My Impossible Life with the same motivation that many, many people I've spoken with. I have a podcast in which I podcast memoir writers, and I often ask that question. And it seems to me a universal impulse from people who have lived through some difficulties and written about it is, is to share how, to share that there's a path. But the trick with memoir writing is you can't say it just out loud, like, here's how I did it, and this is what you can do, and that'll make it all better. That doesn't work. The trick is you have to – I've learned so much about writing memoir, Jennifer, while I did this. I know you've written two memoirs, so I'll be looking for your confirmation as I begin to describe. The book talks about and why it's called My Impossible Life is I'm not supposed to be here. I was supposed to have died when I was 16. And why I say that is I got into a car, I was hitchhiking, running away from home. I got into a car that was driven by two armed felons. And these men held me hostage for three days. And I managed to escape. And that itself is a story. Like, how does a 16-year-old get out of that? And what happens after is I come home and I'm I'm a road wreck. I can't function. I love the dark side. I go to the dark side. I'm into drugs and drinking. And in those days, in the late 60s, early 70s, we didn't have the term PTSD. We didn't know what it was. And people, yeah. So people thought I was just being stubborn and willful and contemptuous and arrogant and all kinds of nasty personal things. And I lived in this envelope of people believing that about me. And because I have a very, very high IQ, I think they put in their heads. In fact, I heard a couple of people say, well, yeah, but you're really, really smart. And so you're crazy. And <laughs> that, was, that was the social milieu that was also happening around the same time as the hippies. So I was very lucky because in that sense, I had also an environment that allowed me to explore my darkness without it being completely um, a place off the planet. There was a, there was a connection through the, how the hippies understood consciousness and how they understood it was all love and you could do whatever. And, and there was a way in which that all kind of supported the things that I needed and the environment that I needed. And in that kind of mess of confusion, I met a teacher, a meditation teacher, Now, this man was Caucasian. He was from the same part of Toronto that I'm from. In fact, he went to the same high school that I went to. Wow. Yeah, it was very strange. He um, had grown up across the street from the place where my mother grew up. So whatever this was all about, I really couldn't tell you. Um, But he had been uh, recognized by a Tibetan leader named the 16th Gyawain Karmapa. Now, think Dalai Lama different Mm -hmm. sect 
Okay. So the Karmapa, yeah, the Karmapa was the leader of the mystic sect of the Kaju, and he had said publicly in Rumtek in 1971, where you see this man, you see me. And the Tibetans were all completely upset by this because no white Caucasian is ever recognized. However, now this man's name in Western terms is Leslie George Dawson, for the sake of our story going forward, and his Eastern name was Karma Tenzing Dorje Namjo Rinpoche. And I just called him Sir for most of the time I knew him. <laughs> I guess that was a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, that is a very long name, yes. <laughs> and I started traveling with this Dawson. I call him Dawson in the book. And everybody saw him as being enlightened, which in many ways he was. He was the smartest man I ever listened to in terms of academic theory. Understand what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So we traveled, and in those travels, I encountered many, many adventures, including sailing the Gulf of Mexico in a 22-foot motor sailor that I didn't, four of us who were sailing with the captain and the owner of the boat did not know how to sail. He was the only one who knew. And we sailed the Gulf of Mexico. And I've since talked with friends of mine, who, one man who owns a 33-foot yacht, who said, you can't do that. <laughs> I learned that you can't do that. And we did it escaping tornadoes that were coming across the Gulf. Um, I drank Chang with Mongol men in the north of India, and that was ridiculously stupid. I managed to get away from that. And there's just a whole lot of stories that went along with these six years or seven years of traveling. But the focus in that time for me was trying to heal because I knew something mm -hmm. desperately wrong. I knew that something was desperately wrong with how I was. I was... Well and you mentioned to me offline that when you came back from your experience with the the two men who basically kidnapped you, the armed armed robbers uh, who kidnapped you, that you really had no memory of what had happened during that time. Thank you. That is exactly right. Because now we can talk about writing the book. I began writing the book when I was 17, and I still have that version. Mm -hmm. In spite of having lived in different countries and traveled around the world, somehow that version is still with me. And it has none of the tough stuff. It has none of the horror of what happened because I didn't remember any of it. Walking textbook PTSD. Not going to hear it, not going to listen, not going to be there. Well, that means you cut off part of yourself that's supposed to function. And it is right. a it is a self-survival that we've learned how to do. It's really an amazing technique in the brain to just, well, you can't go there, so that's fine. You're not going there. You're going to put your life together the best way. But I was hauling like as though I had a Mack truck behind me that was full of garbage, heavy, serious, toxic material, hazmat material. Yeah. I'm carrying yeah. down the highway of my life. And every time I try to turn to do something, to put myself together in a better way, to get more self-directed, the whole garbage is right against the back of my cab. It's a very good, I think, way of trying to help people understand what it's like. So I was immersed in a numbness from head to toe. My sensory mm -hmm. data was not coming in in a present day situation kind of way. What was happening was everything that triggered me what had to be dealt with. And I was being triggered constantly and didn't know why. So I was in emotional chaos. Now, the work that it took for me to come back from all of that was about four and a half decades of serious and intense work. I used nightly dreams. I used body work to release my body. I used primal therapy. I used journaling. 
I used, uh, well, I, I was also gifted because my mother's lineage is Scott's visionary. Now, understand that although my grandmother was a visionary, was my mother and my great-grandmother, my mother, my mother's mother, my great-grandmother and my grandmother were both alcoholics. Mm-hmm. So there was visionary capacity and huge dysfunction going on at the same time in my poor mother. But she was visionary, and I grew up in a house where that was considered a great power. My father thought it was a great power. So the whole patriarchal thing is saying, well, this is a great power that women have. While I was under my mother's auspices, of course, he would never let the light shine on me, and neither would she. It was all about her. So it took me a few decades to figure out I'd been living with this same power and talent or ability and so I had angelic intercession I had I had angels talking at certain points mostly when I wasn't going to do the right thing <laughs> just kidding <laughs> no you can't go there you silly girl uh, but that was greatly helpful in my healing process and I continued to do two things that brought me joy which is singing and dancing so I have had a lifelong habit now, many decades of habit of dancing in my house whenever I need to uplift and mm-hmm. of singing when I need to express emotions that I'm having a need to express. In addition to that, of course, I've been writing. So I wrote poetry and okay. I did 10 years of poetry, performance poetry. I got a master's, double master's degree. I had a son, I have a son. So at that, I was a single parent and I wasn't going to be able to support him. And I knew I couldn't work in an office because I can't function in that world. I still have trouble Mm -hmm. functioning in what we call a straight world. I mean, using old hippie terms, I just, I can't do it. It, it, It's too upsetting for me. I want to sit people down and say, why are you so sad today? (laughs) So I have developed that into a profession and people come and talk with me and I'm welcoming anyone who's listening to uh, get in touch with me. Um, I'm fine with that. And uh, even an hour sometimes is what we need with someone who can listen. That is very true. Right. Sometimes yeah. that's all we need is someone to just go, yeah, that is the way it is. And man, I wish it was different and I'm sad for you. And just be there and listen to you talk your way through it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've been writing this book for many decades. Now, I haven't been focused on it because of all these other things I was also doing. But I knew the book was in the back of my head all my life. I knew this book was going to be written. It had to be written. The story is amazing. The story, the story itself is, is with all of the different adventures I got into, is, uh, is pretty intense. And at the end, is uplifting, I believe, and, and um, inspirational. Um, the reviews I've been getting from people is that it was. Then I wrote, first I wrote and actually published a book called The Stain, which is based in fiction. Mm-hmm. used three different narratives, three different times, three different women. And this is important because when it came to writing the memoir, I thought, oh, well, this is going to be easy because I've done this kind of thing before. I've done the braiding. I've done the weaving. Right. And I was flat on my keister around this memoir. <laughs> And why was that? Well, because memoir, I think, is the hardest kind of writing to do. I, I wrote a nonfiction book as well, Medicine Buddha, Medicine Mind, about the scene between visualization meditation, which is what the Tibetan uh, Vajrayana Tantra is about, the Tibetan meditation techniques, 
Although mindfulness comes from His Holiness Dalai Lama, these other techniques come from the Kaju school, not the Gelug school. The Dalai Lama's Gelug, and this was the more mystic school. It, it, is, it embraces visualization and mantra work. When I started reading neuroscience and how much of a geek am I to do that? Well, I'm a geek and I was reading neuroscience and falling in love because the very first book I read in 1999 about neuroscience exploded for me why the meditations I'd been doing and I had been doing them as the center core of my healing, why they worked. Here's the how, here's the brain. This is how it works. I was all excited. So I wrote that little book and put it out there. So now I've published two books and I'm thinking I'm pretty good, pretty hot shot, got my guns in my pocket, know how to fire them out. Boy, I'm ready for the old K Corral, right? Well, I go to write this book. And first of all, I would just say to anybody who's going to write a memoir, get a trusted reader or an editor mm-hmm. that you can work with and go and find different ones. Shop around. People online, people offline. Get the right editor, because if you're writing a memoir, something happened in your life that is important enough to write about. And if you're writing that, you need to have someone who understands you personally enough to work with you. And I'm terrible to work with. I am just a I'm a prima donna from way back. (laughs) Highly sensitive, very sulky, don't want to hear anything except how great the work is. I found out a whole lot of stuff about myself watching me relate with my poor editor. And she's a therapist as well. So it was a good thing. We never went into that, but she learned to bring me certain supports that I needed. And she's brilliant with language and with words. So I am very indebted to Sue Reynolds for all of her efforts. And I did something very smart. I sent out early copies to you. And I sent early copies out to about five other women who I trust as brilliant, intelligent women who have a real deep interest in this kind of writing. And you all, you were amazing. You gave me two pages of notes and I read every one. And then I realized the version I'd sent to you simply wasn't going to work. And I had to do what Stephen King said. I had to kill my darlings. So I had to throw it all out and start again. Oof, that is not an easy task got to do it yeah. got to yeah. do it I I had I did that so many times if I and I really I did this in the very end just before I finished the book I put up next to me all the paper of all the versions and this wasn't including the versions that were online that I did in my cyberspace it was about three and a half to four feet high I am an incredible revisionist. I spent seven years learning how to teach writing. I'm a terrible writing teacher. I'm terrible at it because I just want to drive everybody into being perfect at it. (laughs) Right. It's terrible. Um, So I'm very good, though, at learning. I knew I had to keep writing. For me, it's writing the first drafts and then it's revising, 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 revisioning, re-looking at, re-hammering down, sentence structure. How many sentences are very are in simple form or how many are in cumulative form? Am I varying them enough to make the writing really flow? Those kinds of skill sets were all brought to bear on this work. And I had to learn how to let go of a number of scenes. I've got another chunk of writing that's maybe three inches deep, different scenes that I finished that didn't get in the book. They didn't make the final cut because they didn't come to the theme. Did you find that was a struggle for you? What I found was a struggle was keeping keeping the story going and not getting like 
sucked down into the weeds. Mm. You know, I, I didn't need to write about every minute of every day. And it was okay in my book to have a week or two weeks or, you know, a month or whatever to go by without me describing everything that happened. Mm-hmm. As long as I was able to make the story connect. Um, the, the other thing I found, uh, especially in my second book, uh, Where To, um, I talked about some challenging parts of my life as well. Some, sure. some old wounds that I had. And I will tell you that the writing flowed beautifully until I got to a really painful part of the book. I think it's chapter nine. And, um, and it took me well over a month to write that chapter. Yes. And, and then, you know, and then like you said, going through the process with an editor, how was it for you when you got to the real emotional stuff, the hurt, the pain stuff, the stuff that caused your PSTD? How was that writing for you? Thank you for the question, Jennifer. I went to a six week course with Sue Reynolds. And in that six week course of writing, I went every week and I wrote the first the version of the three days that I knew now. Now I'm in my late 50s and I now have done all that emotional work and all I'm interested in is making it the best possible literary version that I could put on the paper. But I could only do this once for those three days. That was the tough stuff. I could only do it once and I did it while I was in her class and then I went, Okay, that that tough stuff. I wasn't crying or unhappy about it, but to go there naturally, as you know, when you go to your deepest wound and try to express it, you, you this is part of the very very challenging part of memoir, I think, is you have to have already gone through enough of the emotion that you're not going to get overly emotional and just start reigniting the neural pathways of that original event because you don't want to re-traumatize right on the other hand you don't want to be without emotional evocation you want your reader to feel what it is you were feeling at the time and that is always the challenge I think in all writing that is in fiction or whatever we want to bring the reader into that emotional space Yes. And as horrifying as that those three days were, I still had that challenge to, to keep people intensely enough in the story to, to have that. And then the challenge was where to put that in the book, because I had no idea. Does that come in the beginning so people know? Does it come at the end? What happens? It ends up at the end of the book. And that was uh, a late, late, late time uh, development. Yep. You speak about having stopped your writing because your nine chapter nine was um, very, very difficult and it took you a long time. I can so relate because I got to the very end of the book of the storytelling part of it that it had to weave into the past as well as have the present day um, mind. And I found that hard. I resisted doing that. I wanted to do straight narrative. I did not want to bring in today's mind of the wise older woman who sees what happened and I d- and I had to. I finally took two courses with Brooke Warner of She Writes mm-hmm. Press and uh, Linda Jo Myers out of National Association of Memoir Writers, and they were brilliant. Those four two courses, four weeks each, very inexpensive, and we studied a book called Brain on Fire, Suzanne Callahan, mm-hmm. amazing story, and another book called Smashed about a young woman's alcoholic. And I'm sorry, I don't have her name. I think her name is Lisa. 
and I apologize for not having that name with me. And what I learned there was, no, I had to take the old, the, the present day mind. I had to bring it in somehow. So that was my biggest challenge in terms of writing this text. Then I got to the very end of the storytelling with that writer's, with that writer's voice intact and a surprise ending happened for me. And I sat back and I went, oh, my goodness, how did that happen? That's amazing. The universe is wow. working. My goodness, I had no idea I could do that. And it worked out. And I was just so pleased. And then I went, okay, but I need an epilogue. And I sat down and nothing happened. Now, I have been writing since I was six years old and picked up a pencil out of this urge from my body and wrote a pen, wrote a poem to my dog. I remember that. And then I showed my mother and it was a big deal in our working class family. I've been, I've never, ever in, that would be 61, 60, going on 62 years, have I ever had writer's block never yeah suddenly I couldn't write I'd sit down and then I'd get up I knew the, the words weren't there I could actually hear the paragraphs as I would go through the house or do something else or whatever that I wanted to put together but I couldn't write I cried it took me about 10 weeks I cried I finally went you know what if I can't write this I can't write it if it never gets published it's not up to me I have to let it go so there's a five decade project that I have to let go. I have to just give it back and say, I, I can't do this. Right. I can't. Well, within a week, I sat down in two days, two hour sessions or three hours, whatever it was, a couple hours every day for those two days. And I wrote 10 pages of epilogue and they came out once and I didn't revise it. And I went, oh, <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> So let me ask you something else, because, you know, you said you wrote the first draft of this when you were 17. Yes. It's been something you've been working on on and off, right, for decades. Why now? Why the push now to get the book out? I think there are a number of um, possibilities. One was I felt the confidence because um I, it's still, like many, many women, I didn't feel capable of talking about that in such a public way, being raped and tortured and, you know, incest with my brother. And it's like, it's very dirty, very ugly stuff. But I gained strength from all of the Me Too and all of the Time's Up. Mm -hmm. I also gained strength from having written two books and saying, you know what, I can do this. And it was a kind of end life I, I'm not going to be satisfied unless I do. I've been planning to do this all my life. It's now or never, basically. Right. My right. son is well, happily married with children and is a very powerful human being. You know, they, they have their usual, you know, everybody's got their struggles or whatever, but they're very right. emotionally, very beautifully balanced, very healthy. The children are in good shape. My partnership is relatively in good shape, although that's with me always a kind of question. I mean, I'm a tattered human being. <laughs> I always will be. I give up. And I think it was just that kind of understanding that now is the time, having written two of the other books, because I was also creating this book as I was writing the other two. Mm -hmm. I was writing this one. I literally was writing it down in yellow foolscap, some of the things and ideas and thoughts, because I have to, because they get so scattered. And I was writing the other books. I was also writing this one. I went back to my journals because we have just finished, of course, a decade. And I went back to look at that decade and I realized I spent most of the decade writing three books and writing them at wow. the same time. Yep. So, yeah. So you can recognize, I'm sure, because you wrote 
this trip will change your life. And I'm sure there were moments when you went, okay, and then there's another book in here. Or did you? Actually, I didn't. Oh. Which was interesting. Yeah, so this trip was pretty straightforward and easy for me to write from the, I'll call it the storyline perspective, because I had been keeping uh, very detailed journal journals of what was going on and what the shamanic training was like and everything. So that part was easy. The challenging part for this trip for me was um, was putting out there that I had been doing shamanic work in the first place. Yes. Right, because that is, um, you know, it's a, a spirit thing. It's not a religion, as you know. It's a, it's a, I'll call it a healing modality that's been around forever. Um, but, you know, there are, People out there who think it's just crazy and insane. There are others who exploit it and 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 use that for their own financial gain, uh, like anything in life, right? Everything can be exploited. And and I just wasn't sure how people would react to me. So I was more nervous about having people read it and then say, Oh my gosh, you know, that that woman's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah then, I then I was about thinking about the story itself and, and, and writing the story. Um, and then, you know, it came out and I got some good reviews and people enjoyed it. I still get people reaching out to me. It's been uh, four and a half years or so since the book came out. Yep. And um, I still have people reaching out to me saying, oh, I loved it. Uh, so that was very empowering. And so then I was like, well, maybe I will write another. And I challenged myself on the second one to be more personal. I mean, the shamanic training and everything was personal, but it was, it was a story and it wasn't getting down to your point into those emotions that brought people along um, and, and allowed them to see me more as a person as opposed to somebody who has this ability to do shamanic journeys and to talk to spirit beings and things like that. I mean, that that's pretty, I want to call it cut and dry and non-emotional. Uh, whereas the second book was very emotional and I, I made a conscious effort on that. And I knew I had succeeded when I got a message from somebody who read the second book, Where To, and, uh, and they said, I cried with you last night. Mm. And I said, mm, I, you know, I didn't quite understand what they meant. And then they talked about how they felt my pain in, right. in that. I mean, mostly in that one chapter, but there was pain in other chapters as well. But in that one chapter, chapter nine, this this person felt my pain and cried because of it. And that's how I knew I succeeded. And yes. of course, that chapter is the one that I was the most nervous <laughs> about putting out there, right? Yes. Uh, like you said, you know, you, you, it, it takes a lot of courage to write about that kind of experience and yes. pain. Yeah. Yes. It does take so much courage. I'm glad you're using that word for any of us to write about the things that make us human. That yes. is, the things that we're not good at. The thing, as you said, this shamanic world that you know how to enter into I, I really want people to understand you come from corporate america so when you're saying you were concerned that people think you were crazy it's because you'd spent all your lifetime being very successful in corporate america yes Suddenly, yes and, the, and there's 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 no woo-woo in corporate america right <laughs> yeah. no. 
and so suddenly this other side of you takes up and, and away you yeah. go. And so to have the courage to do that and then to have the courage to dive deep and look into how the pain of life has affected us and affected you, you know, how the how the sorrow how the sorrow, how the unfulfillment, how the circumstances worked in such a way that the thing that you wanted the most was taken from you. Yeah, yeah. And the pain of that, you know, and, and that's, that is, I think in an essence, the paradox of life is that there is both of that. There's the beauty and the terror. There's the love and the hate. There's the both sides of it. And in our culture, we skim over the dark parts. We don't want to acknowledge, you know, everybody right. wants a thought leader who's just out there with no baggage and or I, I want to talk about the baggage, but doesn't really, no, no, no. If you're going to talk about your baggage, I want to come along with you. <laughs> well, I mean, look at how we present ourselves on social media. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, everything is perfect, right? The, you see the pictures of the family doing the family vacation and everybody's smiling and they're hugging or, you know, arm in arm or whatever, or the perfect holiday meal. And, you know, the kids are all sitting there, their hair is perfect. You know, nobody's showing the pictures where you're on the family vacation and the kids are screaming at each other because yeah. one touched the other. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. or the, the family meal where, you know, un- uncle, uncle, um, stew is completely trashed and, you know, <laughs> spilling food all over the place. You know, nobody shows that because that would make us real. And yeah. we want to put this image out there that yeah. we're somehow perfect and we've got it all together. And so absolutely right. Coming out with either this trip or where to, or in your case, my impossible life, we're showing, I love the word you use tattered, that we're tattered human beings, Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think there's a there's a line from Leonard Cohen, a great Canadian who passed recently last few years about uh, he's a song to God. And it's about uh, the children in our rags of light. And that just strikes me as being so clearly true. We are beings of light. But because we ignore the darkness or don't want it, we end up in rags. Our, our yeah. raiment is supposed to be both. We're supposed to, you know, and I, I love your way of talking about it. You know, you go to the beach with a couple of kids and there's going to be an ice cream on somebody's head before you finish. That's the picture yeah. we <laughs> <laughs> on all the, all the sites, Instagram and Facebook. My children are making me crazy today. You know? <laughs> but you know what? That's the picture that everybody can relate to. Yeah. That's the picture yeah. where people say, oh my gosh, I've been there. I know this pain, this frustration, this um, feeling of helpless, whatever it is. When the kid is laying down in the middle of the store and throwing the temper tantrum, every parent in the world has been there. Absolutely. And absolutely for for certain. And, and to your point about the way we like to present things, uh, one of the lovely writers I was able to, I've been able to podcast for, um, Elizabeth De Silva wrote a book called Another Cheesy Family Newsletter. And it, the cover mm. of the book white with a little red ribbon across it because she found her family writing those newsletters every year and found herself sitting down and writing that newsletter about this and that and how everything was great and then she finally started writing about the fact that her daughter was addicted to methadone and Mm. had been involved with drugs and was pregnant and there was this whole underside that she brings out in the book that is just heartrending 
and how she succeeds in her life with her husband through that and with her daughter and helps out without it being sentimentalized is amazing. It's a really interesting book. And I found so many writers, you know, um, yourself, of course, on my on my podcasting and uh, Deb Brandon, who is a math prophet, Carnegie Mellon and wrote a great book called But My Brain Had Other Ideas about cavernous angioma, bloody bleeding brain and how it changed her life. She had PTSD mm-hmm. coming out of three surgeries. She went back to teaching, but she was no longer teaching the brightest and the best in the math department. She was teaching the liberal arts people, which makes me giggle because as a liberal arts major, I know what math means to most of us, <laughs> which is right. this course, please. You know? Right. But right. she looked right and she was all about it. So over and over again, all these stories of success and power. So let me ask you this because we have about eight or so minutes left of our time. Um, It goes, it always goes quickly. What would be the one thing you would like a reader to take away from your book? Hope. Hope. Yep. It doesn't matter. I don't, however you've been broken, we're all broken. And this is a way to, there are bits and pieces in there. There's talk about meditation. There's talk about angels. There's talk about, and in the angels, of course, there's prayer. There's a talk about, it it doesn't go on. I'm not dogmatic. I think I've avoided being dogmatic, which is very difficult because I tend to be, but it, 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 there are very body exercises, breathing exercises, ways. We have so many ways. Now we have a name for the pain. It's PTSD. And there are so many ways in which people, whether it's trauma or just, living pain we can reach out now we can learn to breathe we can learn to I think the number one thing that I learned and it comes up at the end of the book is I had had these explosions come from the unconscious and I had to put a boundary on them because I was going to school and I had a son I had to somehow make boundaries so I took one bit of time every week Fridays I put my son to bed And I would go back into whatever was bothering me that week or back into a memory. And I would write about it and I would cry and I would get all sweaty. And then I'd go and take a bath. And then the rest of the week, it was about focusing on what was working. And this was way before any of the gratitude, which is so powerful to use, or any of those. It was my way of trying to stay on top of things because it was very difficult. So I would suggest to anyone, if you have pain in your life, give it a place. But don't make it mm. every day. Don't make it your everyday experience. If you're having an everyday experience of pain, find a way to get to some joy. Right. Joy right. Beautiful. Get to some contentment or something that lifts you up just that slight bit. Keep doing that. Keep doing that thing that lifts you up. Beautiful. And I know my listeners will want to know more about your book. Can you repeat the title and where they can find it? It's called My Impossible Life, and it is available through my website, www.soulsciences.net, or it's available on Amazon, and I think that's it right now. If you're in Ontario, it's in the Blue Heron bookstore still, um, but it's mostly I'm mostly pumping through Amazon uh, to go to the different countries. I'm working with the categories on Amazon now. Okay. Great. Great. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. It was a joy having you on the show again. And um, I I will put a plug in and I I know I wrote a review on Amazon about your book, but it is a very moving story. And 
um, the courage and the tenacity that you had to, to face down, uh, well, first to face and then to face down what happened to you and figure out how to bring that forward in such a way that you could live a rich, fulfilling life is inspiring. Oh, so, thank you. Thank so you for sharing this story. Thank you. And thank you for all the work you do in the world. We all need you. Oh, you are welcome. So with that, I'm going to wrap up today's show. Thank you again, Charlene, for being on. Folks, check out our book on Amazon or go to Blue Heron if you're in Ontario. And um, we look forward to having uh, Charlene on the show again and talking with all of you listeners at some other time about another topic. Have a great day, everyone.